Welcome back to the MMA Meeting Let's Talk with Weasel podcast where we talk all things MMA. I hope you guys are having an amazing day over here by the Midwest in the United States. You know, the weather's great, temperature's great. Had a great breakfast this morning, some scrambled eggs with with a little bit of feta cheese layered over and a couple croissants. And I was looking on any news coming out in MMA and first thing I really took notice to was that the Chinese government is making fighters or they've already done this where they made fighters cover up their tattoos. So it's like a no tolerancy to tattoos through all media platforms such as not just sports, but singers, actors, subcultures. And I'm seeing that they're taking a step further and actually banning tattooed fighters. So instead of making them cover up with rash guards and tape and stuff like that, they're just not going to have them fight. Now, I don't know how this is going to impact the UFC going to China. It's a whole different story because it's the UFC. It's not some smaller organization. I really wonder what they're going to do with Jessica Andrade, for an example, who has a lot of tattoos on her. And she's the main event of that card versus a Chinese fighter, you know, so it's a big opportunity for the Chinese market. But are they going to outright ban that fight because Jessica Andrade decided to put ink on her skin? It's a very, very weird rule. Very weird. I don't know if it's an actual law. Seems like just some kind of media regulation they have. It's pretty funny to me. It's kind of ridiculous. Very old school in 2019 to have that kind of mindset to ban pretty much art or drawings or words that you want to put on your skin. And I also see that they're not even allowing hip hop culture there. It's their thing. I don't know how the UFC is going to respond to that. I don't know what they're going to do, if they're going to have to negotiate and potentially add a little bit more because I know they're putting in some PIs over there which is a huge investment. The United States only has one, but he's going to add them to China because there's definitely great talent there. I mean, look at all the Chinese fighters that have recently come into the UFC and pretty much dominating. I mean, start with Li Jingliang, and now you even got a Chinese fighter fighting for the championship. And you even have Song Yadong, who is by far the biggest prospect coming from there, could be a huge star in the Asian market. And what he did on UFC 239 was insane, man. But looking at his mentor and Uriah Faber going to the last card, Team Alpha Male delivered. And Uriah Faber, it's pretty funny. Someone commented on my video and it actually made me laugh. Uh, Team Alpha Male is actually banking on a 40-year-old former retired fighter. But to be honest, they did pretty well that night. I mean, from Josh Emmett, TKOing Mursad Bektik was very impressive. I had a feeling Emmett was going to win because he is better in everything that Bektik does. And he has more power. And he has you know, just overall better attributes with better skill. And then you had Andre Feely putting on the performance of his lifetime pretty much. So far, he is still very young. I mean, his skills and technique was flawless in that fight. And it's just showing that he is progressing. And he is at Team Alpha Mill, right? So they're doing something probably a little bit different. Because your paper did say that they have a lot of coaches there now. Potentially, Team Alpha Mill is getting things together. Because for a long time, it looked like they were very unorganized. And all gyms were bypassing them because of their progression in combat sports. They knew who to bring in. They knew how to breed fighters. That's probably the wrong word. They knew how to grow fighters, such as ATT. I believe ATT is probably the best gym in the world right now. And it's just amazing how great of a coach Mike Brown has become from a former WC world champion who did fight Uriah Faber, you know. So yeah, Uriah Faber put on a great show. One right hand over the top. Now what I really want to get into is his whole thing with Henry Cejudo because people will think this is crazy. So Uriah Faber beats Ricky Simone in the first round and he instantly called out Henry Cejudo. On his part, it's a smart move, right? He has the notoriety. He has the following. He has the name. He has the experience. He is still pretty good out there. He is not aging like other fighters in their 40s. Yes, he's a 135-pound fighter, which makes you think this is a little bit crazier. And Uriah Faber is still able to compete with the young fighters in the 135-pound division. The Henry Cejudo went on Twitter, I believe, and actually kind of played along with it. And he did call out Uriah Faber before. Remember that? When he beat Mala Marais, he called out a bunch of names and one of them was Uriah Faber, which makes you think, if two big names in the sport, one being a double champion, beat some of the greatest fighters of all time, versus the veteran, the legend, the icon, who is coming off two wins, and is also using his fame to call out said champion in Henry Cejudo, you might think that the organization might be in on this, you know? I know Dana White loves Uriah Faber. I know the organization loves Uriah Faber. And with no real clear contender, I would say it is Aljamain Sterling. But there is Peter Yan there. There are other fighters coming up the ranks very, very quickly. I can clearly see a scenario where they have Yan versus Sterling for the number one contender. And in the meantime, do Uriah Faber versus Henry Cejudo. But there's another problem there. Henry Cejudo is also a champion 
in 125-pound division, and with their signing of Askar Askarov, who, by the way, if you haven't watched my prospect video, I talk about him a little bit on that one, showing off some of his flawless skills as a great prospect in the sport. They signed that guy in 125-pound division, so it shows they're not done with that division, right? They're still going to go on with it. I don't know why they let off so many fighters before, but they brought in one of the biggest prospects in the sport. So Hudo's still the champion there. And Joseph Benavidez is the clear number one contender. There is no one close to that spot yet. And that has to be Sudo's next fight, right? Now, I am a purist. I like if they go by the ranking system. I like if they go by an order. So, have him fight Joseph Benavidez, have Peter Jan versus Aljamain Sterling, winner gets the title shot. Then Sudo goes back up and defends his belt in that weight class. Have Uriah Faber fight some other guy. I wish they still had John Lineker because John Lineker has a lot of experience. He would have been a really good fight for Uriah Faber, and if Faber would have beaten him, he potentially could have made a claim to a title shot, right? Potentially. I still think he probably need one more fight, but kind of sad that John Lineker went to 1FC. Uh, He's going to have some good experience over there. He's going to have some good fights over there because 1FC is absolutely no joke. It is still a little bit strange he left or they cut him from the organization. I understand he was complaining a lot about not getting fights, but if you actually look at his record, since December of 2017, he has actually pulled out three times. So that's quite a bit. And he has pulled out before a couple times too. So it is a little bit on his side as much as maybe on the UFC side, which is why he only fought three times since 2017. You know, he would have had three more fights. So you can't blame the organization too much if you're pulling out like that. And he had fights against, you know, Cody Garbrandt. He's had fights scheduled against Dominic Cruz a couple times against Rob Font, too. I mean, you know, he's had some good opportunities and he just pulls out of those big opportunities. He could have had a title shot a long time ago. So let's say he did fight and beat Dominic Cruz. He would have had a potential title shot. So, but the organization likes what the casual fans want mostly. And they do like big names. They do like like big marquee fights and Henry Cejudo versus Uriah Faber is probably the biggest fight Cejudo can get right now besides moving up to like 145 or something crazy. Inside those two weight classes he's the champion and Uriah Faber is the biggest fight for him. Makes Henry Cejudo a bigger name because let's be honest Cejudo will most likely dominate that fight if not finish Faber pretty quickly. Cejudo is a different kind of speed, a different kind of power, a different kind of athleticism with different kind of fight IQ that he showed in the Malin Marais fight, which is extremely impressive. So not a good fight for Faber, man. Oh, and I think they just announced Brian Ortega versus Korean Zombie. That makes me scratch my head a little bit. What happened to the Zabit fight? What's Zabit doing now? So Ortega and Korean Zombie are targeted for Mexico City in September 21. So it's a good venue. It's a good opportunity to make Brian Ortega a, bit, a bigger star. But the fight is pretty soon. So we all know that Brian Ortega was supposed to fight Zabit, or it was rumored, and it seemed like it was going to happen. But then something happened. I think Brian Ortega actually wanted more time to heal. I think that's what it was, but he's fighting so soon now, right? In two months. And the Zabit fight, I would think, is a lot bigger of a fight than Korean Zombie. It had a lot of people catching on, it had a lot of people excited, and if Zabit would have won, it would probably give him a title shot, right? I did favor Zabit heavily in that kind of fight, but it being in Mexico City, maybe they wanted Ortega and Zabit to have their own kind of fame separately. They didn't want one fighter to knock down another fighter, so Zabit could be a huge name in Russia. He already kind of is, but they can grow his name, have him compete in Russia, and they can have Ortega get bigger in Mexico. So maybe having Zabit versus Ortega in Russia or Mexico does look pretty strange, right? It does look like, okay, you're setting one fighter to fail here. But if you have Ortega versus a veteran in Korean Zombie, it makes a lot more sense. It's a lot more logical, right? And it's a lot more competitive, I believe. I think this fight could go either way. I think Korean Zombie is a much better striker than Ortega is. And he has the matching power as well. The Jiu-Jitsu is obviously going to go to Ortega, but I don't think either can take down the other. But then again, Josiolo took down Zombie like four times in that fight. So maybe Ortega could possibly get it to the ground, but that's probably underestimating Josiolo's takedowns because he has an insanely fast blast double leg. That's a very competitive fight. I actually favor Korean Zombie a little bit because yes, Ortega took all Max Holloway shots, Holloway is not a power puncher. He doesn't really knock out too many people. Korean Zombie has one-shot knockout power. He's already shown in his last two wins. And Ortega's defense is a bit lacking. He's going to throw a jab? Okay, throw an open jab on Korean Zombie. That didn't do too well for two of his last three opponents. Trying to take him to the ground could be a little bit risky as well. I think Korean Zombie has better cardio, but Ortega would have to be a little bit more pressuring. He has to put the fight to Korean Zombie. He cannot go tat for tat with Korean Zombie because every time that's happened, he's winning those exchanges. Even the Yair Rodriguez fight, yes, Yair was doing very well. He was tagging Korean Zombie a couple times. He was actually matching his speed, but he had the luxury of his footwork to deal with a lot of the pressure from the blitz from Korean Zombie, right? Ortega doesn't really have that. 
if they're gonna stay in the pocket with each other, Ortega really only has the power to hit back and crack Zombie clean, right? That's the only difference in this one. But if Korean Zombie is able to swiftly slip on the punches and attack Ortega from there, Ortega really has nothing to defend himself with. Ortega's defense is mainly his offense, and that's such a risky style to go after Korean Zombie with. It makes for an exciting fight. I mean, it's gonna be crazy in there, man. I cannot wait to see this fight, but it's a risky one for the future of Ortega. Hopefully he made the necessary adjustments from his Max Holloway fight because that kind of fight either breaks you mentally or forms a 2.0 version of yourself. He could show us something new, maybe a better wrestling game. I don't know why a lot of jiu-jitsu guys don't develop a really strong wrestling game. Only Jacare really has, but he isn't super great at wrestling. He just has a really strong single and double leg. That's really it. He doesn't mix it up too much. Everybody else from Ryan Hall. I mean, he goes for MNR roles a lot. That's a little bit different. But even Ryan Hall to Fabrizio Verdum to even Damian Maya, even some guys like Gunnar Nelson and other great BJJ fighters, Ortega in this case, they don't really have strong wrestling. So how can they really use their Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? You want to force it upon your opponent. And I think it would be one of the biggest things Ortega should do in his game. But I wonder what they're going to do with Zabit now. Because he's number 5. Ortega's number 4. Volkanovski's out. Jose Aldo's open. So they could potentially do Zabit versus Aldo. Now that's a much harder fight for Zabit than Ortega is. It's a bigger name. It does better for his fame. It does better for his popularity. If he beats Aldo. But man, that's the hardest fight in the entire division, I think, for Zabit. All those light kicks are open now. His boxing is no joke. He's not going to get taken down. It's a hard fight for Zabit. Zabit's going to have to really mix up the game on Aldo. But Aldo's never faced a guy like Zabit. He has never really faced guys that throw head kicks at him. That's interesting. Notice all of Aldo's fights. When is the last time someone was really throwing head kicks at him? And that's something I really want to see Aldo react to. How does he deal with the length of Zabit, the posting ability, the head kicks, the knees, crazy wheel kicks, all kind of unorthodox, unpredictable attacks, counterwise or even aggressive. How does Aldo deal with that? And that's such a different kind of puzzle for Jose Aldo. So actually, yeah, man, I would love to see that. Jose Aldo versus Zabit. Winner gets title shot. For sure, Zabit should get a title shot if he wins that. But then you still have Volkanovski. So this whole Frankie Edgar thing, man, it might create a bit of a log jam up there. Because Volkanovski is going to be next, most likely. If Zabit fights Jose Aldo and Zabit wins, now you got him up there who is on a very similar path that Volkanovski's on. So you can even make a good argument Zabit gets a title shot over Volkanovski. It depends how he beats Aldo if that happens. And Chan Sung Jung, if he beats Brian Ortega, which is a very likely thing to happen. I mean, he's right there with those two guys. So what do you do then? Right? One of them gets a title shot, the other two fight each other. And there's going to be some angry fans about it, maybe but they potentially get to still see a great fight. I don't know, man. Featherweight division is so stacked right now. It's so good. To be honest, I actually think the lightweight division, even though I still believe it's the most stacked in the UFC, I think the other divisions are starting to catch up now. Featherweight is right there. Bantamweight is getting close. Welterweight is right there. Middleweight is getting strong. Light heavyweight is actually getting promising. It was the weakest division for such a long time with nobody besides John Jones, Gustafson, and DC. And John Jones was out of the picture then too. So it was really only DC and Gustafson. And Anthony Smith and Tiago Santos were just getting into the division. But now you got Nikita Krylov, who's a good prospect. Johnny Walker, Alexander Rakic. Gustafson's still a decent name. But the fact that he got beaten is actually good for the division. Jan Blachowicz is up there. Dominic Reyes is up there. Anthony Smith, Thiago Santos, Daniel Cormier, John Jones. This division is getting strong, man. And I'm very happy. I have it so sudden too. But let's get to the questions now. For any new viewers, if you want to ask a question, you could go to my YouTube channel under the community tab. And I usually post questions for podcasts sometime in the weekend. Sunday, Monday, or Tuesday usually. And you reply questions under there. The questions with the most likes get read first. And I do read pretty much every question. Besides if they're repeated. And if Twitter is more convenient for you, I have my Twitter handle under every single video. You could tweet me and make sure to hashtag it MMA meeting. Starting with the most liked comment. This might actually be the most liked comment that I've ever had on this podcast. So, Jose Ruiz. You're locked in a room with every female UFC fighter. Okay, this is most likely not going to be a PG question. A warning before I I had someone tell me before I was reading one of these kind of questions and they were with their child and it made me feel a little bit guilty. So so let's get to it. You're locked in a room with every female UFC fighter and you're wearing a suicide vest that will explode soon, okay? But will be deactivated by eating the ass of one female UFC fighter in each division who is blessed enough to feed the weasel. 
So, okay, as a ass-eating savant, so start with the featherweight division. I think, obviously, it'll be Megan Anderson. The bantamweight division, this is tough because you have Bechkoea. And that is, that would be, I would think, an ass-eater's dream. So, yeah, why not? I'll pick Bechkoea. Then we go to the flyweight division. I would like to say Valentina Shevchenko because for some reason, I don't know. There's something about Shevchenko, but... I gotta stay true to myself, Rachel Ostevich, and then the strawweight division, maybe Alexandra Albu or Pollyanna Viana. Those who will be blessed enough to feed the weasel. Now, this isn't just for me. Obviously, it is because I have this vest on, but I'm in a locked room, so I'm saving everybody here. This is a group effort. And then we go to Cody Russell. Who would win in these bare knuckle fights? So starting with McGregor versus Nate Diaz, I think you're talking about. So McGregor's gonna have the power. Diaz has actually, I think, a better traditional boxing game. Him sparring with Andre Ward constantly and Ward saying that he actually gives him a tough time in sparring every single time. That gives a lot of credit to Nate Diaz's boxing. He is a very good boxer, man. And his understanding of the boxing game is higher than most fighters in the UFC. McGregor is most likely gonna cut up Diaz badly. That's a big thing. Now, Diaz got cut up pretty bad with four-ounce MMA gloves on. Imagine bare knuckle. The friction of the blow on the face of Diaz can really scar him up a bit. It could be a glancing shot, and that's enough for it to scrape open a big cut. But I believe a guy like McGregor versus the style of Diaz might actually break his hands at some point. Yes, McGregor is very precise where he lands that left hand, but... He does land 100% every single time he throws it. And Diaz never keeps his chin high up. He always lowers his head and creates a bigger target for the forehead. It shrinks the target for the chin and it enlarges the target for the forehead. And Diaz can slip and move his head and potentially catch a fist to his crown. And if that happens, good night to the hand of McGregor. Diaz, on the other hand, he doesn't throw 100%. When he throws a lot of 50% punches, that's why it's a lot of volume. That's why he doesn't get tired when he does it. That's why he throws a lot of combinations. He's able to go to the body too. And that's another thing. McGregor doesn't usually go to the body. Diaz does. And when you go to the body, besides landing to the elbows, potentially, you don't really have to worry about breaking your hands there. Yes, you can land to the hip or you can land to the elbow, but that's pretty much it. The head moves a lot more, right? It's a five, two minute round fight, which will favor McGregor knowing that he doesn't have as good as cardio as Diaz. McGregor could potentially land some big punches bare knuckle and hurt Diaz out there like he did in the second fight. But contrast to that fight, there's no leg kicks. He set up a lot for his hands behind those kicks. When Diaz was looking to box and he was leaning back and showing his legs, he thought McGregor was going to come in like in the first fight, throw these big punches and not land clean too many times, get rolled on, move with the punches a lot of times, but McGregor started kicking the legs, which forced Diaz to square up a little bit more. And that also aligned up McGregor's timing, his range especially, and it kept Diaz on edge. Confusing the target between high and low is a very good thing to do to the opponent. This fight, Diaz doesn't have to worry about that. And I believe he's a better traditional boxer. I think he can go to the body a lot more in a bare knuckle fight without worrying about getting kneed or head kicked, which could potentially also gas out McGregor. So, tough fight to call, but I will lean Diaz just a little bit. And if you look at their first fight, Diaz hurt McGregor before 10 minutes. This fight is going to be 10 minutes. And there weren't really too many leg kicks from McGregor and stuff like that. So if McGregor didn't go for the takedown on Diaz, Diaz most likely would have TKO'd McGregor on the feet. And then we go to Lobov versus Sahudo. Lobov does have the experience. He's going to be a little bit bigger. But I have to go with Sahudo, I think. I mean, he's a lot faster. I think the power is going to be relative. I actually think Sahudo's going to be stronger in the clinch. He's going to be a lot more knowledgeable on there. Even Pauli Malignaggio is doing pretty well in the clinch with Lobov a couple times. Sahudo's a different level there. He has a wrestler strength when he grabs a hold of someone and Lobov does swing wildly sometimes and Saudo had to deal with Marlon Marais who I actually believe is a much more dangerous puncher than Lobov is and Saudo walked him down boxed him up need him a couple times obviously there's no knees but I believe Saudo is going to be a little bit too elusive a little bit too quick and precise for Lobov and the difference between Lobov and Diaz and where they hold their chin Lobov tends to keep his chin high up so Saudo doesn't really have to worry about landing to the forehead as McGregor does for Diaz so I'll go with Cejudo. I'll go by a decision. For Diaz, I'd probably say a decision as well. Then we go to Masvidal versus Woodley. I think this might be the most one-sided out of all of these fights. Masvidal has a clear advantage. Better boxer, better fight IQ for boxing, more experience. He was a backyard fighter back in the day, so he has experience going with bigger men. I mean, who did he fight? I forgot on those YouTube videos. But the guy was clearly bigger than Masvidal. Clearly. He looked bigger than Woodley as well. And Masvidal dealt with him pretty well back then. Not saying he's on the level of Woodley, but 
showing the muscle can deal with bigger opponents. Woodley's going to be a little bit bigger. He's going to be shorter, but more mass and more power. But Masvidal's way too slick, man. That jab will be in Woodley's face all day. Masvidal knows when to commit 100%. He doesn't normally use his guard, which is excellent for bare knuckle. He always slips. He leans. He knows where to move his head. He knows where to position his feet. Whereas Woodley likes to put up his guard. And four ounce gloves does make a pretty big difference than no gloves. So Woodley, where he throws 100% with everything he throws, that right hand's mostly of what he's got on the feet. I think it's too rudimentary for Masvidal. I think it's way too simple. And Woodley doesn't have takedowns. So Woodley's an entirely different fighter if he doesn't have a takedown threat. That's why opponents are very tentative of when to come in on him and when not to. When you have a good wrestling game such as Kamar Usman, now that worriness is not there. Right, you could pretty much do a lot more to Woodley rather than if you didn't have that wrestling game. So Masvidal doesn't have to worry about it. Woodley's an entirely different opposition when he doesn't have a wrestling game to work with mixed up with his right hand. Right, when he has a right hand and he has a double leg, now what do I do here? If I'm a little bit aggressive but also looking out for the right hand, he could potentially go right under my attack and take me to the ground. Now, if I'm tentative and I'm trying to get in and out, now that speed in that right hand of his is in play. So it makes a very hard opponent to figure out. So I'm going to go with Masvidal on this one. I think he'd probably win a decision because of how short the fight is. But I could also see a late TKO. Then we go to Rumble versus Nganu. Sign me up. It's not going to be good for someone's health. You know, it's going to be great for the viewers. Probably not great for the loser of that fight. The loser of that fight, you might need a stretch for ringside, you know. So 100% someone's getting put to sleep. I know they both have really good chins. But the power them to generate, it is too much for the human skull to take. Now we're talking about 280-pound Rumble Johnson. Bigger than Nganu is. And I can see a slower Rumble, right? And that's not a good thing. Rumble needs his speed. That was a big thing for his game. Even DC alluded to it. Everybody knew how powerful he was, but it wasn't his power that was so effective against DC. It was more his speed to get in. And if he's going to be 280 pounds, potentially loses some weight to fight Nganu, get in fight shape. He might get down to like 260, 250. Still a little bit big, man. And is it going to be faster than Nganu? It's going to be hard to see it. It's going to be relative, I believe. I also think their power is going to be very close. But I would say Nganu is probably going to be more powerful. He is longer. He is taller. He is a better boxer. He has a better understanding of footwork better understanding of foot placement, and he has better form in a lot of punches he throws compared to Rumble. And a huge thing is, Nganu is a fighter at heart. If things get tough, he's still going to fight back. We've seen Rumble a couple times, man. When he gets put in a bad situation, he kind of just lets it happen. And if it's going to be a boxing fight, and if you ever start covering up a little bit too much, be a little bit too defensive on Nganu, the guard is a lot less effective in this kind of fight. Someone's going to be on cue to sing a lullaby for Rumble. So I'd have to go with Nganu. Also, we have seen a mutual opponent between the two, and that is Andre Arlovsky. Rumble could not knock out Arlovsky. He hurt him plenty of times. He broke his jaw. But Nganu sent him into another dimension with two shots. One was kind of glancing. The other one lifted him off his feet. And that was it. It was the first round. Rumble went three rounds with Arlovsky and couldn't put him away. That's a bit of a difference between power there. And they both landed clean on Arlovsky. But Rumble is 280 pounds now. So maybe he has more power, less speed, which can still hurt him. And even then, I still have to go with Nganu. He's still active. He's still training all the time. He's looking for fights. He has that fight in him deep and that's a big big difference i would pay double for that pay-per-view man that's a fight i would never get to see anywhere else so and isn't it crazy rumble's like 280 right he fought at a weight class 110 pounds under than what he weighs right now think about that he fought at a weight class that's a rose not Yunus away you know like i mean rose probably like 120 something but you know what i'm saying almost a whole human away he fought at that weight that's crazy man and then we go to Antony. If Valentina Shevchenko had murdered or permanently disabled Jessica I with a head kick on live TV, would MMA be outlawed? This is a lot more serious now. I mean, obviously, those are the worst circumstances you could ever have in a fight. Unfortunately, it has happened a couple times. You know, thankfully for MMA, it rarely ever happens, right? Whenever it happens, everybody hears about it. That's how rare it is. In boxing, it happens a lot more. And would it make MMA outlawed? I don't think so because... Again, it has happened before. It's happened in boxing. It's happened to other sports. And they have never been outlawed. You know, it's happened to soccer or football. It's happened to many other team sports that everybody likes to watch. It's a lot more mainstream, I guess you would say. Or a lot more fan-friendly to the eye, such as maybe American football, which in hindsight is a lot more dangerous than MMA. 
and it's still not outlawed. I know some people want it to be outlawed because of all the science that's coming out of it, but I don't think MMA would be outlawed. Granted, it's on the grandest stage of the sport, co-main event, championship fight between two women. I understand a lot of people don't want to think that would make a difference because of the difference in gender, but for a lot of casual fans, it would be a big factor in pushing for an outlaw. I don't think so, though. I don't think so. I think it would leave a stain for a year or two, and then it would eventually go away as we see that it doesn't normally happen. You know, it's a very, very rare thing and unfortunate thing. And then we go to Min Din. Who do you think would win these matchups? Number one, McGregor versus Masvidal at 170. I would go with Masvidal. Boxing defense to deal with the offense of McGregor. I won't say Masvidal is better in that department, but it would really put McGregor's offense to a test. Maslow does have a very good wrestling game. If he wants to go that route, he can easily go that route and change up the game for McGregor. And that allows his boxing to work a la Habib. Habib is not nearly as good of a boxer as Maslow is, but his boxing was able to work on McGregor because he kept going for takedowns. If Maslow starts going for takedowns constantly in the first round, now it opens up his hands. And his hands are a lot more dangerous. He has good kicks as well. People don't really know how good of a grappler Maslow is. Look at his grappling match with Pettis. Pettis is a legit black belt in jiu-jitsu, and people think that he's a better wrestler than Masvidal. Masvidal did very well on the ground, even had the advantage a few times. So I would go with Masvidal. I think it's a very, very close fight, though. At 155, it would be a little bit different. Number two, Woodley versus Diaz in a street fight. So which Diaz? Either way, I would say Woodley. His wrestling on concrete, man, that changes the game a little bit, you know? If you double-leg someone, lift them, slam them. It's a different kind of impact. I understand the Diaz brothers know how to land better than normal people do. But imagine, for an example, Rose Namajunas, right? She's a very high-level BJJ black belt. Very good on the ground. Very good at grappling. Jessica Andrade is nowhere near the level of Woodley in terms of wrestling. Nowhere near in terms of how to control the opponent and how to manipulate their body movements. Look what happened with that high crotch, right? And also, Rose is way more elusive than the Diaz brothers. Like, she's a lot faster. And Andrade really isn't that fast. I would actually say Woodley's probably faster than Andrade is. So if Woodley can get under the Diaz brothers and potentially get a high crotch or even double leg and lift them and slam them, it could be good night right there and then. You know, it doesn't matter how good your chin is. Sometimes it does, but on concrete, man, it'd be tough. Um, also, Woodley has one punch knockout power. He has light kicks, too, to destroy the Diaz brothers' legs. It's a very bad fight for Diaz's. And number three, Habib versus Usman in MMA-only grappling. If there's no strikes, I would go with Habib, because I don't think Usman has the capabilities of submitting Habib at all. He is bigger, he is a better traditional Western wrestler, but Habib has better judo, which can actually work against the wrestling of Usman. He has better Brazilian jiu-jitsu, he has better sambo, he has better submission ability, he has very good wrestling. Habib is a lot more credentialed and a lot more skilled in a wide variety of grappling arts. And he would, of course, get bigger. You know, we've seen Habib bigger. Nowadays, he is lowering his body weight to make an easier weight cut. When he fought Michael Johnson, when he fought Daryl Horcher, he was a lot bigger. You can physically see it too. People are saying like now his head looks a lot bigger than his body. It's actually his body has shrunk due to him lowering his natural weight. So Habib weighing 190, cutting to 170, he's not going to be that much smaller than Usman. Usman's a pretty big guy who has a very low body fat, but Habib will still hold a lot of weight in that weight class. So I'll go with Habib. Then we go to Pumpy FN. Johnny Walker versus the top 15 heavyweights? To be honest, I cannot make a good assessment of it because Johnny Walker has only fought in the UFC for 2 minutes and 48 seconds. So it'd be tough, you know, without seeing the guy even get hit yet. That's a very hard thing to analyze, you know. And also, he hasn't fought a top 10 opponent. He hasn't fought one of the top guys. He fought Misha Sorokinov, who's no joke. Top 15 caliber UFC fighter. And he ran through him in 36 seconds. But if he goes out there and beats a guy like Gustafson like this or Anthony Smith like this, then this guy's unstoppable. I mean, he'll be everybody in the heavyweight division. Um, I feel bad for Jones if he's able to do that. But I cannot make a good assessment, even in the light heavyweight division yet. I know he's good. I know he's dangerous. But I just don't know how far he'll be able to get. Never mind the heavyweight division. You know, I have no idea how he would perform up there. And Walker's crazy, man. He even said that he believes he would beat Francis Ngannou. As well as he packs more power than Ngannou or relative. And apparently, you know, he went to the PI and he hit the, the cube thing. You know, the one that generates your power. And he said coming off surgery, he almost had the same numbers as Francis Ngannou with a punch. And it also depends what kind of punch did you throw because Ngannou threw a straight and Ngannou threw it in place. He didn't like walk up to or anything. So I don't know how Johnny Walker punched it. It really does matter. But if he threw the same punch stationary, that's scary, man. <laughs> that's scary. 
If not DC or Stipe, who can beat Francis Ngannou? Nobody. I mean, think about it. Look at the top ranks. He has beaten JDS, who's number three, beat the number four Curtis Blades. He lost a very weird fight to Lewis, and I think if he's in the right mindset, he would beat a Derek Lewis. Um, he beat the number seven Overeem. He beat the number eight Cain Velasquez. Everybody else inside the top eight. The only guys he has not beaten, well, he never fought Volkov, and he lost to Lewis. He's already beaten pretty much everyone else. I don't think Volkov would win. I don't think Derek Lewis would win. Olenek would travel dimensions as well. Abdurahimov, no. Ivanov, no. Tuivasa, no. Tibora, no. Harris, no. Sakai, no. I mean, there's no real great prospects besides, besides, Cyril Gane. I think that's how you pronounce it. Huge prospect for the heavyweight division. Great kickboxer. His striking is dangerous, man. He's very fast. Extremely good jab. He's very long as well. Super athletic. Elusive footwork. I mean, he will... I mean, if he gets somewhere in the UFC, he just got signed too. So if he gets anywhere in the UFC and progresses, I could potentially only see him as the threat to Ngannou. And how do you see Ngannou versus Stipe or DC now? I definitely think he has a better chance than before. He seems to be getting better. I think his fight with Stipe would be very competitive. I think actually Ngannou would win a couple rounds. Of course, he can knock out Stipe at any given moment. I still think Stipe might win a decision though, but very, very competitive. I think a first round Ngannou is going to be so dangerous to Stipe. Actually, I think the second round Ngannou would be more dangerous than the first because I think Ngannou will come out with a better game plan. Maybe not being so aggressive in the first and confuse Stipe in that first round thinking he's going to do something crazy and then carry on into the second with a higher pace. But I think Stipe still takes like the last three rounds. And as for DC, I think this is the hardest fight in the entire division for Ngannou. DC can obviously get head kicked or left uppercut if he keeps leaning to his right like that. He did it to Stipe, he did it to Derek Lewis many times. Ngannou is the wrong kind of guy to do that to. You never want to lean on Ngannou. Look at the Alistair Overeem. You never want to lean. In the clinch, DC is going to have a hard time. He's going to get overpowered in there. But I think the wrestling, the single leg that DC is really good at getting a hold of, is going to be a major weapon against Ngannou. It's going to be huge. You know, and DC is very fast for a heavyweight. He has power for a heavyweight. It's a hard fight for Ngannou. Stipe and Ngannou will go either way. DC would most likely win a late submission. And then you go, so I'm 17 right now, turning 18 in a few months. I recently started wrestling and I would say I'm all right at it. Granted, I come from a boxing background. I'm about six foot three inches tall, 164 pounds, and I have about a 77 inch reach. Just by my body shape, you think I would be good at MMA. I really want to get into it and one day hopefully be in the UFC. Okay, so you're still young. You know, obviously you could learn a lot. You have a boxing background and you recently started wrestling. You're very tall, very long, low weight, which actually, strangely enough, works in a lot of cases, you know, like Zabit. So you're 164 pounds. You'll most likely be a featherweight. I mean, you could push lightweight. You'll be a bit small. Taller guys can do it very well at a higher weight class compared to guys that weigh more than him. It would be better for you than someone who's like five nine right 164 pounds going to lightweight you have a much bigger advantage but let's say you're a featherweight let's say you're like zabit zabit's what six two six one you have a boxing background which is very good for your reach jab uppercut left hook all that stuff is gonna be really nice but when it comes to wrestling you're gonna find very early your defense is gonna be so much better than your offense take it from me too man i started taekwondo when i was very young i went into boxing when i started grappling several years ago my takedown defense and grappling defense wasn't just better than my offense obviously that happens with everybody right usually your defense is a lot better than your offense when it comes to grappling it's a it's actually like the opposite for striking but what i noticed was it wasn't just my defense was better than my offense it was such a big gap between the two I was able to defend takedowns I never even practiced before. Like, I never even felt before. I was able to defend those. And as soon as I would practice a takedown or shooting for a takedown, roll a little bit, I was getting guillotined for going for single legs and high crotches. I mean, it's crazy. And I've seen that in a lot of strikers, not just myself. I've seen it in so many people. You know, even some people I know who have been boxing for a long time, they start wrestling, they start grappling, and they have very little understanding what to do offensively. But defensively, they're so hard to take to the ground. And I think that's probably going to happen to you too, which is actually a pretty good progression, to be honest, because if you can stop takedowns, obviously now they're going to have to stand with you. Land punches, use your boxing now. Kicking defense is going to be a big thing as well. So I would say takedown defense, kicking defense are the first high level things you should be learning because they're your weaknesses so fill in both of those weaknesses those holes in your game as well as learning slowly your wrestling offense how to take someone to the ground so you can mix up the game on them and then develop kicks offensively so those are some early advice 
But yeah, I obviously think you could do good at MMA. It's all about mentality. You seem like you want to get far in it. You're still young. Obviously, you're gonna learn a lot mentally, not just techniques, but just throughout the throughout your journey. And last question: If Connor has good cardio, let's say as good as Habib, do you think he beats everybody at lightweight? No, I don't think he beats everyone at lightweight. Obviously, I think he would have beaten Diaz convincingly. He could potentially beat Tony Ferguson, right? I would probably favor him then. I still think he loses to Khabib though, because even in that first round, Connor was not gassed out, obviously. Even in the second round, he wasn't really that tired, it seemed like. I think late in the seconds when he started to get tired, but after getting dropped, then Khabib ground and pounding him to oblivion. Connor still was getting controlled and taken down easily. That first round was just, he didn't do much at all to Khabib, even in the second round. You know, those are the early rounds. So, no, I still think he loses to Khabib. Joshua Torres, who wins a fight to the death, Ferguson or Khabib? I think Ferguson. I think he has better cardio. I think he might have the best gas tank I've ever seen. You know, that performance against RDA still blows my mind. You know, Ferguson has fought with a broken arm against Michael Johnson. So, even if Khabib breaks the arm of Ferguson, Ferguson's still coming after him. He has that deep fighter mentality. Nothing's going to break him at all. You can break both of his arms. He's still going to throw kicks at you. He's still going to throw elbows and stuff. I think Ferguson, more knockout power, more dangerous on the feet, also dangerous on the ground, better card, it can last longer. I think Ferguson would win in a fight. Then we go to Sammy J. Bellator versus UFC fantasy matchups. Musasi versus Romero. Romero dominates. Very bad fight for Musasi. He even acknowledges that. Musasi versus Adesanya. I would stick with Adesanya. Musasi's not going to take him to the ground. And the striking difference between the two is so vast. There's a huge gap in technique. I would say Adesanya also dominates. Lovato Jr. versus Whitaker. I would say Whitaker all day. Whitaker would shame Lovato Jr. out there. Lovato Jr. is really a Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighter who's a big guy. Decent wrestling, I guess, but you have to be way better of just a decent wrestler to even compete with him. The striking gap is enormous. MVP versus Wonderboy, man, I want to see this fight so bad. It's a tough fight to call. I think it can go either way. I would stick to Wonderboy because of his experience. He's a little bit more versatile. I would stick with Wonderboy in that one. He probably also has higher fight IQ. Roy McDonald versus Usman. Usman dominates. The wrestling's too strong. He's too long. Volume on the feet as well. I don't think Rory would be able to keep up. Bader versus Stipe. I would stick with Stipe, but I actually think Bader would surprise a lot of people. Bader is very similar to Stipe in a lot of things he does, but he's faster. I think stylistically it would be a very competitive fight, but I think Stipe would eventually catch Bader. Pitbull versus Holloway. I think Holloway, although Pitbull does have that style, man, that good wrestling, Good BJJ, great striking, good power, very aggressive. That style that Holloway hasn't been fighting too often. He's fighting it in Frankie Edgar. He's going to be fighting it in Volkanovski. Pitbull's another kind of guy. So I have to see how Holloway deals with Frankie Edgar first, and especially Volkanovski. That will really determine how Pitbull will also do. I think Pitbull's an amazing fighter. He would do very well in the UFC. Then we go to Benjamin Affleck. Would Anasanya on his best performance beat Jones that we saw on Saturday? No. I think this fight is so one-sided. I don't know why people always talk about it. Maybe because they're like the same height. They look like the same person. But this fight's very bad for Adesanya. Jones didn't even wrestle. Adesanya's biggest thing is striking. Yes, so is Thiago Santos. But Jones doesn't have the same kind of threatening sense against Adesanya. So like Adesanya isn't as dangerous as Thiago Santos is, which potentially kept Jones off of Thiago Santos, right? He didn't want to get too close. Against Adesanya, it's the opposite. You want to get in close for the wrestling, you know? Uh, clinch up with Adesanya, potentially take him to the ground. He's a lot bigger than Adesanya as well. It's a really bad fight for Adesanya, either way. And how do you see Whitaker versus Adesanya, and who's more likely to get finished? I see Whitaker winning that fight. I see him eventually catching Adesanya, maybe in the mid-rounds. Whitaker pretty much said it best. He said if Kelvin, who's as short as he is, with the striking proficiency that he has, can get in on Adesanya like he did and catch him early and even late in the fight, what do you think Whitaker can do? Who's faster, better striker, bigger, more power, longer, what do you think Whitaker would have done? Right, Whitaker was able to get in on everybody's fight. Adesanya doesn't utilize his jab as much as I think he should. You know, on Whitaker you have to. You you can't just try to bait him and counter. It's a very hard guy to counter. Whitaker is very good defensively when he moves in. When he's moving out, that's when his defense kind of lacks. Right, you see Romero exposed that. You see even Wonderboy exposed that a long time ago. It's a very similar thing. And also a big difference here is Whitaker doesn't need to get away. He doesn't need to get in and out and expose himself when he's retreating back from Adesanya. When he gets in close, he doesn't want to get away. He wants to keep that distance. But when he's coming in, 
He is extremely methodical. He knows how to get in. He knows how to put his hands up as well as attacking on the same side with extremely fast punches to set up high kicks, body kicks, all that stuff. Whitaker's main thing is to blitz the opponent and he gets in on everybody, man. Even on Romero, who you shouldn't be doing that with, he was able to do it. You know, a couple times he got hurt, but even for it to work occasionally on that guy is impressive. I think Whitaker does the same thing. I think he stays on the outside a little bit, Feels out the fight. Adesanya is throwing a couple things his way. Whitaker is blocking him. All that sort of stuff. And eventually he starts to draw out some of Adesanya's long punches. Whitaker slips on them. Gets in. Blitzes down. Catches Adesanya with a couple punches. And potentially ends it with a body kick as Adesanya is trying to get away. But I see that eventually a big right hand dropping Adesanya. With a similar entry. And then Masvidal versus Usman. I will say Usman. I think the wrestling is too strong. I think he's too tough. He has a really good chin. He won't make too many mistakes. He's a very, very smart fighter. And Masvidal versus Colby. That's an interesting fight, man. I think Masvidal would win that one. I think he would stuff some of the takedowns. I think he would get taken down a couple times. I think the rounds would be like 2-2 each going to the 5th. And I think Masvidal would eventually prevail in like a very exciting fight. We'll go to wrestler kickboxer. Is it better to throw leg kicks at the calf or at the thigh? Which one does more damage and which one takes more away from the footwork and punching power? If the calf kick is better, why do some fighters still aim at the thigh or vice versa? Calf kicks rule, man. Calf kicks are the best. It's a weaker target to aim for. It's harder for the opponent to counter as well as check it. It's so low for them to check it effectively. You know, it's not toward the knee or the upper shin for a devastating check. You know, the thigh is for that. You know, if you're attacking the thigh, you can potentially still check on the knee, man. And calf kicks weirdly, like, do something to the nerve. We've seen that a couple times, right? We've seen it with, uh, I think, Michael Chandler. And we've seen it with Henry Cejudo. I think we also saw it with Jamie Varner back in the day. It does something weird. So the damage is way up there. So this definitely does more to the footwork. But what takes more away from the punching power? I would say it's probably the same thing because if you can't balance on it right, after getting kicked to the calf a lot of times, you need that balance for their power, man. You can't throw it off balance because the power is just not going to generate correctly through. I don't know why fighters still aim at the thigh. I'm seeing a lot more fighters aiming at the calf now. It's just so much easier. And even at the calf, you can attack from a longer range. And that makes it a lot harder for someone to catch you with a counter shot. It's just so much better, man. No idea why anybody would throw at the thigh these days, unless, like, it's for a specific reason. Something in the fight happening, or they notice something, and they're aiming at the thigh now. Eric Justan, biggest butt in the UFC? My kind of question. Uh, no idea, dude. <laughs> I have no idea. I know uh, on Joga's podcast, he used to talk about Hector Lombard. There was, like... Two months straight, every single podcast, whenever it was uh, Rogan, Bravo, and Shab on there, and Callan a couple times, Hector Lombard was brought up, like, every conversation, it was hilarious. So, I guess him, you know, I haven't noticed. And of the woman, it's obviously Betch Coea. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. Dandy, please let us reply to each other's comments in these types of posts. Everybody like this, everybody like this so Weasel can see and we can have a dialogue on the questions asked before the podcast. Weasel can also read in the podcast each comment thread and see what we think about it too. Wait, you guys can't reply? I'm looking at it right now and I can reply to the comments. Is it just me that can reply? Um, I'm going to look. Yeah, this is strange. No, I want you guys to be able to reply. I thought just, I never really thought about it. I'm going to see if I can fix it. I'm going to see what I have to do here because I always thought you could reply. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. I probably would have never noticed. So that's it for the YouTube questions. I'm going to go to the Twitter questions. Then we go to at Ryan underscore Jermaine 58. Hey, the weasel. I forgot to tweet at you for the last podcast, but I was wondering if you could make an analytical breakdown of hypothetical fights such as Mike Tyson versus Muhammad Ali and others like that. MMA meaning so you can notice. Yeah, hypothetical fights would be interesting. Obviously, we won't know any outcome off of those, but I think the breakdowns could be pretty fun. Personally, I wouldn't know which one to pick. Um, I don't normally think about hypothetical fights, which uh, that's where you guys can come in, you know? Then we go to at Bobby Shikavu. Can you actually finish fights with inside leg kicks to the thigh? I've yet to see that happen besides Silva versus Kanir, but that was due to a pre-existing injury. I've seen fights where fighters land so many that their opponent's inside thigh turns purple, but they still seem not affected. While from experience, inside leg kicks hurt a lot more. There's not much muscle there compared to your quad or something like that. When you're kicking someone's quad, that's like the thickest muscle in your body. Kicking the inside of it, you're not really hitting too much of the quad. And it, it hurts. You know, it hurts a lot more. I'd rather get outside leg kick than inside. But 
one thing you have to take notice when someone's throwing inside leg kicks at you you can kind of step with it and you're still kind of in your stance so that takes off a lot of the power generating through when you're getting kicked on the outside you do not want to change your stance and get your front leg inside more because now you're off balance completely and the opponent now has a vulnerable target on you. So what I think is when someone's kicking the outside of your leg, you're trying to push it back to the outside. You know what I'm saying? You're not trying to follow with the kick because that puts you in a very bad stance. So you're kind of like pushing it back out. You're moving your leg into the kick. Instead of following through, which diminishes the power generating, you're kind of making the damage worse. And also, outside leg kicks are used a lot more than inside leg kicks, right? I would say the biggest display of inside leg kicks in recent memory would be Justin Gaethje versus Dustin Poirier. But then again, what was Poirier doing? Moving his leg on the outside, landing with the big left. Poirier did say his leg was badly damaged after the fight. You know, in opposite stances, Justin Gaethje throws a lot of leg kicks. He doesn't care what stance you're in. He's going to blast you with that right leg. That's why you saw a lot of inside leg kicks, but you don't normally see too many of them. Outside leg kicks, you see them all the time because fighters are usually in same stances. And even sometimes you see them in opposite stances, they're throwing switch kicks to the leg, which will make it an outside leg kick. So I think the amount of inside leg kicks isn't nearly as much as outside. And the whole thing was stepping with the kick. You know, it makes a huge difference. We go to at Nahulston. You have a lot of questions, so I'm going to have to go through them quick, man. You always all got a bunch of questions for MMA meeting. Would be cool if you can answer them. Number one, Askren versus Colby and Marty. I understand he got flying need, and I don't think Usman would do that. Colby can. Colby does throw a lot of flying knees. So I do still think Askren's not all the way out of it, but he would lose both of those fights. Those guys are so much better of strikers than Askren is, and they have a strong wrestling game. Those are very tough fights for Askren. Adesanya versus top 10 light heavyweights. I already did that before. He does really, really well in the division. I would say the obvious one he would lose is against DC and Jones. And Zabit versus Ortega. I wish this fight was happening, man. Again, I confidently pick Zabit to win that fight. He's not going to get taken down. The BJJ won't be a factor. He's a better striker than Ortega. Longer, more slick. Doesn't get hit clean. But he did get hit clean once by Jeremy Stevens and ate the punch. I mean, Jeremy Stevens is the hardest puncher in this entire division. And Zabit ate, I think it was his uppercut. I forgot which punch it was. And Ortega doesn't do well with leg kicks. Zabit does amazing leg kicks. Just too much variety. Too much skill on the feet. And he doesn't really put himself in harm's way. It does look like it sometimes. So he throws some of the flashy kicks. But he's very, very composed in what he does number two if you could copy one attribute what would it be for an example tony's cardio john bones jones range management if i can copy one attribute probably tony's cardio like imagine yourself going five rounds and you can go as hard as you want every single round that's something you can't find anywhere else really um only a couple fighters but at the pace he's able to do with the power and the weight he walks in just having tony's cardio alone you can build your entire skill set cardio is a hard thing to really develop right? I mean, there is Francis and Gato knockout power. Range management, you can work on. A lot of other things you can work on. Cardio is hard. You can work on it, but it's hard to get it to the level of Tony Ferguson's without being naturally good at it. And power is a similar thing, but it's like a cap to it, right? Power, there's a cap and you're trying to fill it up to that cap due to perfect form, knowing how to throw a punch, when to throw a punch, how to deliver it, all that sort of stuff. But Francis and Gano's cap is higher than everybody else's right he has like a jug on you so i don't know which one what would i pick Ngannou's power or tony's cardio for me i understand tony's cardio would probably be more advantageous and it would be more important but for me i would love to have Ngannou's power man why not that would be really fun to have right i mean people won't spar with you that much but i'll probably have that one because power is harder to work on than cardio is number three who has the tools to beat john jones and all of mma so when you say in all of MMA, you don't mean every aspect. You just mean everybody in MMA, right? Who can do it? The one I've been saying for a long time, I think you guys remember, I've been saying this for like a year, year and a half now. And I've always said Francis Ngannou is the guy to beat John Jones. Some people thought it was crazy in the beginning. Now, after seeing what Santos did to Jones, now people are starting to think, oh, wait, no, Ngannou would obliterate this guy. I've been saying it for a long time. I've had arguments I've had debates even in real life. I've had debates online. I've been backing this up because I'm so confident in it. What I see right now, like what can Jones really do to beat Ngannou? Clinching up is not a good idea. Staying on the outside is not a good idea. Throwing a lot of leg kicks is not a good idea. You're going to counter over the top. And Ngannou has really good footwork. He's very fast with his feet. You don't want to exchange with him. Jones really attempts takedowns from the clinch. And that's not going to work on Ngannou. He's going to have to attempt a blast double or a single leg and chain it. Jones hardly ever does that, right? He did it to Gustafson who had an injured groin, 
right? Before he wasn't really able to do it that much. And even in the first fight, he did attempt a blast double on Gustafsson and got him down for a little bit. There's a different thing with Ngannou. Power is different. Size is different. People want to knock on his takedown defense, but when was the last time he was taken down? Stipe Miocic. But Stipe was able to do it due to head movement to make Ngannou miss, make him tired, and counter him with takedowns because of that. Jones won't be able to have that kind of threat, right? Stipe has one shot knockout power. Jones is going to be an entirely different thing, right? He doesn't rely on that kind of shot. And when Jones throws punches, he leaves himself a lot more vulnerable than Stipe does. And Thiago Santos showed that a little bit, but Santos has such a short reach. And Ganu has pretty much the same reach as Jones. So if Jones is going to throw something ill-advised, he cannot just simply get away like he does to everybody else. And Ganu is going to hunt him down behind that vulnerability he just caused. Jones throws a punch and Gano can catch him at the same time. Jones can't post anymore, right? If he posts with his left hand and he's an orthodox, he's going to meet a left uppercut or a left hook. So it's an entirely different thing, man. I still back it today. My claim is stronger and Gano would win. Also the leg kicks, I mean. It's probably a big difference between getting kicked by Ngannou than Santos. And Santos, the first leg kick he hit Jones with, or one of the first ones, he dropped Jones. What's Agano going to do? Number four, do you implement mimic techniques of Jones into your training? The spinning back elbow off a of fake takedown. One other thing was uh, the jumping sidekick to the knee. Instead of just throwing a fast sidekick to the knee, jump. It makes you look like you're faking. They don't expect when you jump, they don't expect you to go low still, right? Um, and I've implemented a lot of interesting things just with that one technique. A lot of combos like I'll chain three, four strike combos with that included. I really actually want to show you guys some of the stuff I've been working with. Other than that, no. Everything else is pretty much something different. Number five, do you see a difference between old Jones versus the new? Do you think the PEDs played a big role in his success? Or do you think that what we see now is a more mature Jones who systematically rather than destructively handled his opponents? Uh, this is a great question. Now, there's a distinct difference here. Old Jones fought the previous era, right? Yes, they were names. Yes, they were champions before. But they were in a different era of technique, of skill, and all that stuff. I believe those fighters, even in their prime, if they came into UFC today, just as how they were, and fought Anthony Smith, Thiago Santos, Alexander Gustafsson, DC, maybe even a Johnny Walker, you know, like all these other fighters, I think they would probably all lose besides maybe Lyoto Machida. I would say Lyoto was on a similar skill set. He wasn't old, old, like Quentin Jackson and... Shogun and those guys, he was kind of uh, just a little bit before Jones' time. Just a little bit. Nowadays, it's a new era, right? So the competition's harder for Jones. And also, they understand Jones' game a lot better than those older fighters did. So it can make Jones look great fighting the older fighters, or it can make him look not so great fighting the new fighters. Could it be that? Could it be the PEDs? It's really hard to say, but there's definitely a question involved. If he never had PEDs in his career, if he never had that controversy we would probably point to the difference of competition right but pds has and we've seen it before we've seen so many examples it does affect fighters trt vitor for an example so we don't know then we go to at every leak i still don't understand and agree with the statement of connor that he needs to be more aggressive in a rematch with habib in order to win do you agree or understand that can you explain it to me yes okay so connor's saying that he wants to be aggressive and put it to habib because that's usually what he does um he didn't really explain it too much. And I disagree. He never really fights like that. There was only one fight he ever fought like that. That was against Nate Diaz in the first fight. And he lost. Wasn't catching Diaz as clean as he was in the second fight. And lost because of it. And actually, he fought that way against Khabib. He trained differently. And he blamed his loss a little bit on his training. Where he said he was training so defensively when he should have been offense. Alright, so he went in offensively against Khabib. Look what he did right away. I mean, he was chasing him down through a left hand. Missed. Through a left high kick. Khabib evaded it easily you know he was just coming after habib and he lost again that's not the way you fight habib it's exactly what john kavanaugh said and i have to give credit to john kavanaugh he wasn't just backing what his fighter was saying he was saying what connor should have been doing go forward and let him come at you what does connor do all the time he does that in every single fight he moves forward he stalks you while pressuring the opponent right he's sitting in front of you he's giving you looks he's making you uncomfortable he's creating an illusion that he's closer to you than he actually is and he's trapping your lead hand reaching all the way forward he wants you to come at him so he can counter you that's what connor almost always does from diego brandao all the way to jose aldo to eddie alvarez to nate diaz in the second fight that's pretty much of what he was doing actually when you look back at chad mendez he was doing that a little bit where he's being very aggressive and maybe that's what he thought habib would be like you know such a heavy style wrestler maybe can't deal with the constant pressure but it backfired on him that's not the way you fight habib you have to pressure habib and you got to make him fight off the fence 
go back and watch how to beat Habib Nurmagomedov video. It's exactly what I was saying. I mean, I made this video almost two years ago, like a year and a half ago. Almost exactly what John Kavanaugh was saying after the fight that Connor should have been doing. That's exactly what I was saying in my video a long time ago. Because there's clear evidence that Habib doesn't do as well on the cage. When he's backed up to the cage and he has to force something, he doesn't do as well. Right? He's a lot more wild and he's a lot more vulnerable in that area. And he never attempts takedowns. He only strikes to get out of there. And before, he's a lot better now, but before he used to wing out overhands just to get out of that. Now he'll throw like a left hook, but he'll throw his hands a lot more. And that's perfect for a guy like Conor McGregor. So yeah, I don't agree with Conor. And isn't it interesting? Okay, so I made two how to beat videos. I made one on Habib and I made one on John Jones. The one on John Jones seemed to have been confirmed a bit. The boxing defense with the pulse and retreat is a big hole, man. I see it all the time. It, that's why a lot of people don't use it in boxing. If you are able to evade the post, now you're wide open. Not only are you open, you're open to combinations now. You're open to not just one punch, but potentially three, four, five right off the bat. And it's hard to go for takedowns. It's hard to counter the opponent. By the way, Jones is leaning back, right? He's putting a lot of weight on the back foot to get in position to go for takedowns. You got to now change your stance, but you're getting comboed on, so it's going to be very hard to do so, right? There's a big hole there, and Tiago Santos did it a little bit, but he kind of let off a couple times because of his leg. I mean, you can't blame him. Also, leg kicks. I always question that. It showed to be true, and Habib, I mean, there's clear evidence from previous fights. Those are some of the holes in his game. Then we go to at Kaslifa. I have two questions. If a professional MMA fighter got in touch with you and asked you for your expertise on breaking down an opponent's game or tendencies to help them win the fight, would you do it? Uh, yeah. Why not? Second question, and I think Tony Ferguson is the lightweight GOAT. If he beats Khabib, this only furthers my opinion. Do you agree? Yes, I do think right now he's the lightweight GOAT. Um, you can argue for Khabib, you know, I, I'll agree. I won't disagree with that. But I do think Tony Ferguson has a little bit stronger of a resume, be a little bit better competition, and he has the lightweight record for the longest win streak, and he was a champion before. Right now, I think it's Tony Ferguson, but it's the great era, man. Khabib and Tony, the two greatest lightweights of all time, in their primes at the same time? Come on, man. That's why this fight has to happen. It would be a legendary fight talked about for decades in the future. It's almost like the Sugar Ray Leonard versus Marvin Hagler kind of, or were they in their primes then? I don't know. But it's kind of like that. When Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard were at the peak, I mean, that fight was talked about forever, you know? It's a very similar thing. Then we go to at Red Stripe Tima. What do you think about Jones saying that he didn't go for takedowns because you shouldn't do so against a Muay Thai fighter? Wow, he actually said that? Is that plausible? It seemed to me like he was hesitant throughout the fight. Yes, okay, so it makes sense. John Jones attempts takedowns in the clinch. Usually, he attempted one takedown on Santos and it failed. So maybe he saw a strength difference and he knew Santos is good at Muay Thai. It potentially could have reinforced his decision not to go for takedowns. Remember, in the clinch, it's hard to get those takedowns on a Muay Thai fighter, man, no matter how good of a wrestler you are. So yeah, it does seem pretty plausible. Thinking about that, that made this fight a lot harder for Jones than I thought in the first place. I didn't think he respected the Muay Thai of Santos that much. Then we go to YT Blueprint. I love your channel. Thanks so much, man. I know you wanted to do a fight companion in the past. Do you still plan on doing this? Yeah, I would like to do it. I'm trying to set things up, man. You know, before I was almost set to do it, but a couple things changed. My ideas changed a little bit on it. So I want to do it right. You know, I don't want to rush it too much. I was really planning on doing it for the John Jones and Santos fight, but I hate planning things, man. I've always been bad at planning things. But if I were to think when I want to do it, it might be for the Habib and Dustin Poirier card. You know, that's a big card. It could be for the DC and Stipe card as well. Also, would it be an option to do a less edited version of the podcast every week? It's up to you guys. To be honest for me, I mean, when I started the first podcast, I didn't have any images up. It made it a little bit easier. Having all the images and having all the stuff I put on top of it, it does spend a bit of time until it finally gets out. So it's up to you guys. You know, a lot of you guys maybe wanted something to look at, but I understand a lot of people don't actually look at the screen when they're listening to podcasts. So, you know, I only did it for the feedback. I still want to show you guys questions on the video. You know, that I'm not going to take away. It doesn't take too much time to do that. And by the way, you should promote your Patreon more. You deserve it. I don't know. I feel weird if I were to promote it or anything. I only made it in the beginning when I started this channel. And, you know, a lot of people wanted to help out and stuff like that. I appreciate it greatly, even from, you know, the lack of promotion I put into it and the people that took their time and even money to help out the channel. I greatly appreciate it. If you guys want to know, I've only been using it for this mic. I've already bought two mics since the beginning of this channel. I bought a camera as well that I'm planning on using for other stuff. You know, maybe showing some technique breakdowns in person, like me doing it, as well as the fight companion thing. 
you know, and I'm also getting uh, more cameras. I'm also getting more microphones in case I have guests with me in the future. So a bunch of stuff, you know. You guys are absolutely the best. Everybody who took their time to go into the Patreon, even me, you know, not promoting it. That just means a lot more to me, man. Thank you so much, Blueprint. Then we go to at J Rodriguez. <laughs> so JR0DR1GU32. I'm not sure if this is necessarily a good question, but me and my brother were talking about this. In the Hori Maslow versus Ben Askren fight, where Hori knocked out Ben Askren with a flying knee, you all also pretty much TKO'd Chris Weidman. Why did Ben Askren get knocked out, but Chris Weidman only got rocked and the ref jumped in declaring it a TKO? Does it have to do with the weight? I guess it was a question. Sorry if it's long. Love your channel. Love your videos. Interesting question. I guarantee there's a couple people also thinking this. Like, why did Chris not get knocked out? Ben Askren did in terms of like unconscious completely. It's just the range of motion that the knee landed. So look at the difference. So you can put them side by side. Hori Mazdal is already in the air. He ran forward, right? So he ran forward, all of his body weight, momentum moving forward. He jumped in the air like he's long jumping in track and field and flying knee with his knee fully extended toward the head of Ben Askren, right? It landed toward the neck as well, but I think it clipped like the temple. With Yoel Romero, he didn't run forward. He kind of just jumped in place a little bit forward. And when he landed with the knee, it wasn't full range of motion. He didn't get that high up before he landed the knee. Hori Mazdal was personal record high jump. Whereas Yoel Romero, you know, just slightly off the ground when it landed. And he didn't wind up the knee as much. So more power in what Hori Mazdal shot out there. So that's the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. And if you did, make sure you give it a like. Make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you're listening to the audio version of this. My next video is going to be a prediction video. I skipped last week's because there are a couple things getting in the way. I didn't want to get it out too late before the fight. So there will be a prediction video. I want to get that out by tomorrow. So be look out for that. There's going to be a new thumbnail. It's going to be a new mystic entity. And again, thank you guys so much for watching. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode.